Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I now convene this meeting of the Justice League of Plain and Ordinary Heroes. You all know me. I'm Fascinating Woman. I look a lot like Wonder Woman, or at least I will if I stay on my diet two more months. But she has super strength and magic bracelets, whereas I am just a pretty good conversationalist. Time to take attendance. Lantern Man. Here. Still no actual powers? No. But I got this new lantern from Amazon. It's a big improvement. The Squirrel. Here. How's it going as far as developing superhuman leaping and soaring abilities? Not so great. But I did climb up on a bird feeder today. Basic man? Here. Just to review, you are from Krypton, just like Superman, yeah? That's right. But you have no powers? Correct. In fact, it turns out I'm lactose intolerant, and I have non-celiac gluten sensitivity and reflux. I wish there were some Kryptonian restaurants here because Earth food does not agree with me. That's too bad. And I see we have a new member today. Uh, Who are you, sir? I am Unitarian Jesus. And what's your deal? Can you heal people and cast out demons and rise from the dead, that kind of thing? No, I am just a man, but I have a very strong relationship with God. Well, you're going to fit right in. Everybody, the Justice League of Plain and Ordinary Heroes faces a great challenge today. General Zod and Mr. Sinister have banded together to attack humankind. I suggest a strongly worded letter to the New York Times. Great idea. Anybody else? Turn the other cheek. Okay, how does that work? When they strike us, we offer the other side of our face to be struck. It's a way of asserting our humanity, but not answering violence with violence. It's a third way, between submission and reprisal. Uh Uh-huh. I'm just going to have to go ahead and table that one, but great suggestion. Oh, that's what they did at the Legion of Everyday Crusaders. Sometimes I just get so... But you know what? I want you to ignore my ideas even more. You're an interesting guy. Weird, but interesting. Okay, some of us have a Bikram class to go to. The rest of you listen to this conversation about Jesus. And now, the winner of the Most Improved Apostle Trophy... Colin McEnroe. Yeah, so we're going to talk about Jesus today, which is fitting here in uh, Advent. Uh, and But we're going to talk about Jesus maybe a little bit differently from how, assuming you are used to hearing people talk about Jesus, which I discovered when I moved over to public radio, actually... There's not a whole lot of that going on in public radio. Uh, but anyway, uh, let me explain a little bit more about what we're doing here. Uh, this whole thing is triggered by the release of a book by one of our guests here in studio, Tom Crattenmaker. Uh, he is a USA contributing a columnist uh, writing on religion in public life, author of uh, three books, most recently, Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower, Finding Answers in Jesus for Those Who Don't Believe. Also in studio with us is Brian Clark, faculty associate in World Christianity and director of online learning at Hartford Seminary. And joining us by phone, uh, we couldn't possibly do this show without the author of Dating Jesus, A Story of Fundamentalism, Feminism, and the American Girl, Susan Campbell. And there must be a, a misprint here because this is Distinguished uh, Lecturer of Communications at University of New Haven. Are you, are you distinguished now? 
No, I'm not, but yeah. I have the title. Yeah, because we've known each other since, what, like 1985 yeah, or something. Yeah, not at all. You haven't exhibited signs of distinguishedness. Not uh, even for a moment, no. I know. All right, so um, we're just going to begin, I think we're going to begin with Tom and and just... You know, I think the thesis of your book can be relatively easily stated, so I'm going to let you state it. Well, hi, Colin. Thank you for having me on. Hi, Brian. Hi, Susan. What my book attempts to do is clear out a space in which non-religious people like me can seriously engage with the figure of Jesus. You know, be inspired by Jesus, receive ethical input and instruction from Jesus, and to go so far as to follow Jesus in a secular way, which might sound new to some people, and that phrasing is probably new, secular Jesus follower. But in the conversations I'm having since the book came out, and in many I had before, I do know lots of people who are not religious who will say, oh yeah, Jesus, I've always been intrigued by Jesus. And I would say that a conversation about Jesus is different from a conversation about church or about Christianity. And so I'm trying to explore that a bit and double down on the idea of being a non-religious person who is motivated and inspired by Jesus. So what you're talking, I mean, you know, and so I think some people's reaction to that is it's a little bit like going to Six Flags for the food. You know, as long as you're there, you might as well get on some of the rides, you know. And and so, I mean, I, th- I think one reaction to that would be, well, then, then why Jesus? If what you really want to be well, we should talk a little bit about what your takeaways from Jesus Jesus are. I mean, what's so great about Jesus if, in fact, you're not going to look at him in the quote-unquote supernatural way? Well, the reason that um, I'm motivated by Jesus, it's not because I somehow believe that he's the divine son of God. It's because I think these teachings and this example that he sets are so amazing and so applicable to things that we go through today, 2,000 years after his life, whether it's personal issues we have or issues that we struggle with as a society. What's the big takeaway, you ask? Mm -hmm. I would say it has a lot to do with how we treat other human beings, and especially those who have the least amount of power and privilege, or as I say in the book, people we could easily get away with mistreating. And I find it really inspiring that perhaps the ultimate judge of our character is how we treat these people who are described as the least of these in the Bible and who Jesus stood up for. And I frankly think that's incredibly inspiring and something the world really needs right now. You know, it's interesting, uh, Brian, I have so many different reactions to what, uh, what Tom is saying, including that I know plenty of Christians who get all kinds of messages from Jesus, except that one, you know, the one about standing with the least, you know, and and and, and embracing the most difficult people he can find. You know, at one point uh, in Mark, he, he eats dinner with the tax collectors. Like, everybody just hates tax collectors so much. They're just considered traitors to their own people. And they're just awful. And he says, you know, I mean, I could go eat with you righteous people, but like, you don't need me. You know, I got to go eat with the people that everybody hates. But I think that's that's sometimes a message. You know, there's a term, um, uh, I think, by Diana Butler Bass called elevator Christianity, which is like all about like getting you off the earth and up into heaven. And, and it's like they skip all this stuff about how you're supposed to. You know, the, you're supposed to stand with the poor and the and the 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 oppressed. Well, that's one of the things I thought when I had the interesting experience of of hearing about Tom's book just uh, three days before I was asked to come on the show. Um, I looked at it, and I kept looking, and I read through it, and I thought, wow, um, he's really trying to take Jesus seriously as an ethical teacher, as a political uh, inspiration, um, somebody who really speaks to our modern 
lifestyles, politics, and everything. And my first reaction is, gosh, you know, I can't say too much bad about this because I'm desperately trying to get other Christians in, including myself, to take Jesus seriously as a teacher. (laughs) And I don't want to throw too much cold water on anything that's trying to get people to take Jesus seriously that way. And Susan, I, I, there's so many ways, places that I want to go here. There's so many things that I, that I want to talk about. But, um, you know, this is something that, that has been a huge issue for you in your life and in your writings. And I know that one of your reactions to this is, you know, kind of what Brian's is. Like, well, wow, it sounds like Tom's getting a lot of really good stuff out of this. Yeah, actually it is. And, and I um, I think what, what Tom is pointing at, out is, is every bit as relevant to people who accept the divinity of Jesus, who go with the supernatural. The, if you look at just, you know, there's a movement within Christianity, the red-letter Christians, who purport to look specifically at what we're told Jesus said, there's some really good information in there, and there's some, a great pattern for anybody if they want to live a fruitful life. I want to talk a little bit also, Tom, one of the things you do within the book is also sort of how, how much of a role context plays when people express what their religious position is. You spent some of your time in Portland where, you know, Portland, Oregon, where, in fact, you know, being Christian, I mean, look, we should say, in the United States, I think 83% of people still kind of identify as Christian when you get down to, like, people who are really going to church every week and praying on a regular basis and stuff like that. Much, much smaller group, maybe about a fourth of the people who vote in national elections fit that description. But you go to certain places, and it's just sort of wildly unfashionable uh, to to be an evangelical Christian. You go to other places, and it's wildly unfashionable to be secular. Uh, maybe you can say a little bit more about like how, how that, how, how you sort of laid that out in your book. Context is so important. And uh, when we look at what's happening in the United States these days, Western civilization more generally, there is a pretty striking trend of people becoming unchurched. The population of the religiously unaffiliated in the United States is now up to a quarter of the population. The percentage is much higher if you look at younger Americans. So one of the big things happening in our culture today is that Christianity is receding. It's more pronounced in some areas than others, as you noted, Colin. So I'm speaking to this from a context of being in that widening swath of secular America. And I have some concerns about what's going on on our side of the tracks As I say in the book, I think that if you look closely, you can sense maybe a quiet crisis of um, a lack of meaning and inspiration, a lack of uh, maybe input and framework, lack of community. I'm addressing these things in my own life and in my writing. And that is the context in which I bring bring up this idea of non-religious people engaging with the figure of Jesus in a secular way. You know, it just, uh, Susan, when, when reading Tom's book and also thinking about you and thinking, and as a lot of people who listen to this show know, especially you, Susan Campbell, you know, I spent the last, well, it's coming up on two years pretty soon now, uh, going to church every Sunday uh, at Riverfront Family Church and, and for the first time in my life really taking all this stuff pretty seriously. And I started to think about you because you came here from uh, Wichita. You came here to yeah. Connecticut from Wichita and you came here from a life where you'd grown up in the Church of Christ. Um, and I, I recently have discovered how incredibly unfashionable it is to say <laughs> to say the words Jesus to people. I was talking to somebody that I know quite well who's a teacher at Trinity College and 
uh, I don't know, there was a discussion going on about doing something on Sunday, doing going to brunch or something. And I said, well, no, I got my Sundays are reserved for Jesus. And uh, she said, really? Jesus? Like I had confessed to some kind of Humbert, Humbert, you know, interest in, <laughs> I mean, the tone of voice was like, I, I was really into something creepy here. And, and I, I probably did that to you at some point in our friendship. Uh, uh. Probably. I don't remember it, and I think I was so accustomed to it. I remember walking into a conversation at University of Maryland where I was a student, and the students were discussing a cult on, on campus. And so I sit down, I want to hear about this cult. It was my church. <laughs> okay, well, um, no, but okay. I, I think the word Jesus um, probably separates uh, the babies from the adults, because if you say I, that's reserved for church— for some reason, people don't seem to take that as um, in your face. If you say the name Jesus, then suddenly it's on. And I don't know why that is. I really don't. But if you said, my Sunday is reserved for Jesus, you're going to get looks. Yeah. Really? And like, I, I dated Jesus. Really? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, you've been leading with your chin on that one with the title of your book. But, <laughs> but Brian, obviously, uh, I know a little bit about your theological background and your religious leanings. And, and so I'm not describing you when I when I say this, but I don't know. I'm going to be talking way too much on the show and I have to try not to. <laughs> so, but I, when I first uh, went to work, I had a roommate uh, whose name was Mark. And Mark uh, was Jewish and he played the French horn and he was uh, quite a genial and pleasant guy. And uh, every Christmas he would join the brass choir at the local church and play carols. And they, everybody at the church just loved him. Uh, and one day the head of the laity came up to him and said, like the president of the lay board there um, came up to him and said, you know, Mark, we just like you so much. You're such a great guy. You know, and you only show up at Christmas time to play the carols and stuff. We'd love it if you just come to church all the time. And he said, well, you know, thanks, Bob. But um, I would, but because I like it here. I like you people. But I don't happen to believe that, you know, Jesus is in any way different from any other human being. I don't believe that he's part of any kind of plan of salvation or atonement for me. I grew up Jewish, and, you know, I just don't believe that Jesus is a divine being. And <laughs> the head of the lady said, oh, hardly anybody thinks that around here. <laughs> don't worry about that. That's not a deal breaker. And, and in a way, maybe that gets to what Susan's saying, which is that within mainstream New England Protestantism, you can go to church— and that's not necessarily the same thing as setting aside your Sunday for Jesus. That's true. Um, there's such there's such a huge range of how people actually see Jesus and how they relate to him, sort of um, imaginatively, um, what kind of meanings they celebrate together when they meet as communities. Um, what is that actually about? I mean, sometimes it's it's a social club. Sometimes it's a support group. Sometimes it is very, very Jesus-centered. Um, the Jesus who is enshrined in that particular community and how they worship and what they do with that um, matters so much. I mean, you can sing literally the song, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, and depending on what you then go and do, <laughs> that can either mean something really, really beautiful or really, really scary, depending on the life of the community and what's expressed by what that means. Who, who is Jesus to us? Yeah, go ahead, Tom. Well, Colin, you talk about how it can be weird in some conversations to bring up Jesus. Mm. Believe me, in the context in which I roll, in terms of the community I'm involved in, the Yale Humanist community, mm -hmm. 
and the humanist movement, it is definitely weird to bring up Jesus the way that I'm doing it. But when people get a chance to think about what I'm actually up to and what I'm saying, some of them warm up to it and the defenses are sort of uh, brought down. Is it also, you work at Yale Div School, is it also weird to bring up the other side of your argument that you're like a secular guy and, you know, I mean. It is. Yeah. It definitely is. So you've managed to make yourself a social leper in two different contexts. Yeah, what an accomplishment. Yeah. I'm so proud. <laughs> um, but, you know, Brian, I mean, one of the reasons we have you on the show, obviously, I, I, I want you to sort of talk about the ways in which, as much as you admire Tom's book and admire the seriousness with which he is, has read the text and embraced so many of its tenets, tenets you feel as though, what, that, that ultimately there's still, uh, 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 failure is the wrong word, but there, he's not coming to grips with what you see as the central message. Well, I, I guess I guess your initial leading metaphor was, you know, going to Six Flags for the food. For me, I was thinking more like celibate marriage or something where, um, you know, for me, it's hard to imagine following Jesus without Jesus' help, uh, to put it. Like how the, the kind of um, resources of, uh, sacred song or prayer or um, the, the kind of devotional life that I'm part of in a community, those are all so profoundly meaningful and helpful to me. And I guess in, in some ways, it's there, there are all kinds of theology things we could talk about, but I think just in this sheer human experience of following Jesus against the grain of the culture in terms of the values that Tom was talking about in the book, but also serving Jesus, following Jesus against the grain of the culture in terms of the sheer worldview um, of, that says that there, you know, spirit is an illusion, material reality is all there is, mm-hmm. status is real, sex is real, there are a few other things that are real, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, uh, for me, I need a lot of, of, of help <laughs> to, to keep going that direction. You know, Susan, one of the things that I've been struggling with a little bit in my walk with Jesus, as you once described it, um, is is sort of the question that Brian and Tom are ultimately dealing with right now. And, and you know, for me, I, I you know, from Sunday from sun to Sunday, from Wednesday to Wednesday, I'm not always 100 percent sure where I stand. I'm still on a learning curve. I'm still on a walk. You know, you could very easily ask me a bunch of questions that would disqualify me <laughs> from from taking communion in my own church. But I, it doesn't bother me that much. I, I sort of feel like I'll either get it or I won't get it or, I'll, you know, I do get it or I don't get it. Go ahead. No, I. why would I ask you questions to disqualify you from No, me? I didn't mean you. I mean, <laughs> that would I'm, be horrible. I meant a person. No, I, but, I understand. There's quality control and there's quality control. But um, I, I think about this, and I have friends who are in the secular world and friends who are still in my old church and everyone in between and friends who aren't Christian or something else entirely. And I don't look at it as a list of rules of do's and don'ts, as I think I did in my early career as a Christian, I look at it as if the overarching theme is love, and that's what Tom is speaking to in this book, you know, putting others first, service, um, paying attention to those who are the most vulnerable, those are your charges, those are your people, then I don't really care if you go take communion. And although I have been really rude on Twitter at times with people who purport to be super Christian, in the end, I don't get a vote on their Christianity. Mm And I'm struggling with my own, and I am so many more years in the cult than you are, and I think that's part of it. If you're paying attention, you probably are always wondering, is this it? Am, am I right on this? Is this 
Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? That, that, Fun, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that doubt, you know, I don't know. Brian, it's like if you take away doubt and faith is too easy, maybe it's, I don't, I don't know. It feels like it ought to be earned a little bit, that you ought to have to fight with it sometimes. If you're not working to reconcile conflicting things in your world, which is what we call doubt. Mm-hmm. Doubt is I believe something because of these reasons. You know, I believe in, say, uh, evolution or the way that the this physics experiment describes reality or the material world or the psychological world. And at the same time, I believe this other thing that seems in conflict with it. Um, if you're not working at creatively dealing with those tensions, if you're pretending that the tensions don't exist or you're raising the stakes so high that says, if I doubt, that is really, really, really bad. And I am really, really, really in trouble. So I cannot go there, so I won't see the contradictions. That's not healthy. Not healthy. Self-loathing yeah. in that formula. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, for you, Tom, in some ways, you have taken the hardest path of them all, right? I mean, that at least some people would look at that and say, well, if you're going to embrace the ethical teachings, which are often quite difficult to do and involve, involve, involve self-sacrifice, involve, as was pointed out in the intro, you know, complicated notions of, of, of not answering violence with violence and not engaging in reprisals when you really, really want to. Uh, There's like all kinds of things that you have to do and burdens that you have to carry. You know, for Brian and on our good days, me and Susan, there are rewards. You know, it's like, well, okay, yeah, but do all this other stuff. And then you get this thing, you know, but you're not you're not in it to win it at that level. I get rewards. I've been really talk about those. I've been paying really close attention to that the past couple of years. And I do think I get rewards. Yeah, I think it's hard. I think it's hard for anybody to follow Jesus, whether they're in a church and a believer or not. And I would acknowledge that if you're a secular person trying to engage with Jesus, you may have some handicaps and maybe even harder, maybe easier in some ways, a different conversation. But it's incredibly rewarding. Even though it's hard, if you experience a moment where you've actually lived up to it to some degree— I notice when that's happening in my life, and I find it incredibly rewarding. There's an emotional component to it. There's a kind of joy in that. And then that has a reinforcing effect on my wanting to go deeper with this thing and look more at the teachings of Jesus and take another step in my trying to implement them. Yeah, it's um, risky at times. It can be scary. A big part of it is making yourself vulnerable, opening opening yourself up to things that you normally wouldn't open yourself up to. But with that risk comes really profound rewards. We're going to grab a little break here. Uh, let me tell you who our guests are. Uh, Tom Crottenmaker, USA Today contributing columnist. He writes on religion and public life. He's got a new book out called Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower, Finding Answers in Jesus for Those Who Don't Believe. Also with us, Brian Clark, faculty associate. Or oh, the lights just went on on my iPad. Uh, faculty associate at Hartford Seminary uh, in World Christianity. I'm doing this from memory now. And somebody named Susan something. No, it's, it's, it's Susan Campbell, whose books include Dating Jesus. We're, we'll come back after this. Reach out and touch faith Reach out and touch faith Your own personal Jesus Someone to hear your prayers 
So we're talking to Tom Crottenmaker. Uh, his book is called Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower, Finding Answers in Jesus for Those Who Don't Believe. Also, Brian Clark, associate, a faculty associate in world Christianity and director of online learning at Hartford Seminary. And uh, Susan Campbell, distinguished lecturer of communications at the University of New Haven. Her books include Dating Jesus, a story of fundamentalism, feminism, and the American girl. So, Tom, you know, as we've said, you kind of have a, a foot in two worlds by day. Uh, you are hanging around with a lot of theologians in your capacity at Yale Div School. And uh, by night, I don't know if it's by night or not, you're uh, very active in the humanist community in New Haven and and at Yale. And so, you know, when you start talking to your humanist friends, uh, and humanism is, you know, one of several terms we we have now for secularists, and it's somewhere in that pantheon that includes atheists and agnostics and all kinds of stuff. But when you're talking to your humanist friends and you're going, I'm <laughs> really into Jesus, um, I, I am assuming that there is this kind of sense like, really? Because aren't those the people who elected Trump and they're like repressive and, you know, they've just been making us you know, do all kinds of things that we don't want to do and getting in the way of social progress uh, for decades. So, Tom, what's up with you and Jesus? I mean, I assume you get a little of that anyway. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, you have to realize that for a lot of people who aren't religious, for them, Jesus can be somewhat toxic because Mm -hmm. they're used to hearing Jesus invoked and seeing Jesus invoked in contexts that they find off-putting, especially politics, right-wing politics. And so you're not going to hear them trafficking in explicit Jesus ideas. But here's the thing, when they start to hear me out and they, when they start to um, listen to the values and the ethics that I'm surfacing through Jesus, they're sort of like, well, yeah, I mean, they can even see them as deeply humanitarian and humane values. Um, I had this experience about a month ago. One of the really adamant atheists I know in the blogosphere who writes reviews of books, he let me know he was going to review my book. And I'm like, oh, no, this guy's <laughs> going to kill me. Because he doesn't really think much about Jesus. I mean, he thinks negatively about Jesus. But then he wrote the review and he said, you know what? I really appreciate what Tom is up to. I'm not into Jesus, but these values that he's surfacing in this book through Jesus are values that I resonate with. And so he was positive about the whole idea after he put his mind to it and really paid attention to what I'm up to. You know, one of the books that I was brandishing when I came in here, Brian, as you know, is The Great Spiritual Migration by Brian McLaren, a new book by a guy who's written a lot about Christian movements. And by The Great Spiritual Migration, I've just started reading it, but he clearly means, you know, a migration from a notion of a punishing and judgmental God to communities based on love. So, you know, I mean, to, to whatever extent um, some of Tom's humanist friends down in New Haven may recoil at the notion of Jesus, a lot of it has to do with which Jesus they've been running into for most of their lives. Absolutely. And I, I'd say that Brian McLaren is emblematic of a movement that used to be called emergent Christianity or emerging Christianity, especially in its heyday about 10 years ago in terms of that label. But it was a very powerful, very powerful shaping influence for a generation of us, Gen X and then subsequent generations following, who were really coming of age and and saying, who is, what is my faith? What is it about? And what we really started searching for is, who is Jesus? Because the Christianity we saw around us was so frightening or so weird or so angry all the time, and it just didn't seem the great way to live. And so the question was, well, if this Christianity around me isn't quite going to work for me, who do we look for? And, And the answer for many of us was Jesus. I don't think it's an accident that 
for Tom, clearly in his book, a lot of the strong, um, positive Christian relationships he's had have been the kind of evangelicals he wrote about in his prior book on the evangelicals you don't know, who are people who tend to be on the social justice end of things, the red-letter Christians Susan mentioned earlier. Um, there are a lot of us out there who have been on a long journey, and and I think that's why, for me, when I looked at Tom's book, I thought, oh, I've heard that sermon. I've seen that illustration. I, I've, I've seen that exegetical point more than once. Oh, yeah, Walter Wink. I mean, it, so many of the influences in the direction are, are very familiar. Before I go to Susan Campbell on this, let's hear from a woman who reminds me uh, a lot of Susan Campbell at certain times, Samantha B. Donald Trump is the darling of the evangelicals. Strong support from evangelicals. I always thought that evangelicals, I'm one myself, are yeah. more conservative. You What's know, going on? Uh, Seriously, what is going on? Are evangelicals that eager to get the apocalypse going? We love the art of the deal, but the Bible is far, far, far superior, right? The Bible means a lot to me, but I don't want to get into specifics. 2 Corinthians, right? 2 Corinthians 317. That's the whole ballgame. God will be very proud of me. When we go in church and, and when I drink my little wine, which is about the only wine I drink, and have my little cracker. Oh, that's my pet name for baby Jesus, too. Happy birthday, little cracker. All right. Wow. So, um, so many things to say there, but yes, of course, wow. he's starting off that famous joke, two Corinthians walk into a bar. Um, so, um, so, I mean, Susan, you know, this is one of the issues that people who maybe don't have a particular staked out religious uh, position. And let's be honest, like, you know, like 25 percent of America is really, really serious about the Christian religion. And 25 percent of America is basically unchurched or atheist or agnostic or humanist or nuns or, you know, and then the other 50 percent sitting somewhere in the middle there just kind of, you know, doing whatever, you know. And, and for a lot of them, they get freaked out. And certainly the humanists get freaked out when Christianity is invoked in these political contexts, and it tends to be invoked much more by political conservatives than it is by liberals, even though, you know, my friend Hugh Blumenfeld wrote a song called That Long-Haired Radical Socialist yeah. Jew uh, about, uh, about Jesus, because that's kind of what he was. But I don't know. It's kind of weird. How, how did Christianity get so linked up with brand? this one side? Yeah. I think the brand, um, and, and I'm stealing this from a friend of mine who's an atheist, uh, the Christianity suffered as a brand when they started including politics as a brand. And you know that three people can sit down and read one verse in two Corinthians. And as soon as he said that, I thought, nailed him. <laughs> he doesn't even know how to say it. And that's not that big a verse that he mentioned, but okay. Um, when you can have three people read one verse and come away with four different interpretations, or this is what I saw. And I do understand people who cling to particular verses that would seem to skew more conservative, but you've really got to look for them in the letters or in, in anything that Jesus said. If you read your book, <clears throat> you're going to tend to be think more progressively. You're going to tend to think, of course, this is me saying this, but you're going to tend to be a little more open-hearted and open-minded. Unfortunately, um, that's not that's not the Christian people see. And if they hear evangelical, and God help them if they hear fundamentalist, you know, lock the door because what you're what you have been prepared to face is someone who's spewing the clobber verses who's sending you to hell. And that is so counter to anything in the book. 
I, you know, I mean, and Tom, I assume that's a lot of what's kind of going on in your head. And one of the things that's driving this book a little bit is, you know, really, I don't know, at our our church, and I really am like the newbie and stuff, but like, um, <laughs> we we read Acts, of, we read all of Acts of the Apostles over a series of Sundays. You know, that's some pretty radical stuff that's in there. You know, if if you do the stuff that they're talking about in Acts of the Apostles. I mean, you would have to do so much more than uh, of a pretty liberal and radical and crypto socialist nature than Paul Wellstone ever dreamed of on his most liberal day. Right. Well, we talked before about context. And um, what I'm doing in the book is really trying to disaggregate and also decontextualize. I'm trying to, like, separate these teachings of Jesus and this figure of Jesus out from the doctrine and the politics and all this other stuff that has been so confusing and off-putting to so many people in our culture. And in a a way, I'm trying to get back to like what's real and what's pure and what's relatable to us wherever we are on the political or theological spectrum. And I'm finding that there is a lot there and it is incredibly applicable. It's amazing how it addresses so much of what we're going through right now in this political moment, for example. I mean, what would it look like to love your enemy, your quote-unquote enemy, in the political context right now. Mm-hmm. So this is, um, this is something that would be incredibly helpful, and it's so difficult to do and think about. Yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of the current political context, Brian, so one thing that has come up in, in my church, uh, one of our pastors has said, well, Jesus is pretty clear that the most difficult people, the people that you find the most difficult, are probably the people that God in particular has sent to you, you know, for various mm-hmm. kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. But that's really one of the big challenges about taking this stuff seriously is to look at somebody whose views are anathema to you or maybe even somebody that you feel is really distorting Scripture uh, or or misquoting Scripture, you know, and say, well, yeah, that, that person has been sent to me to do me some good or to challenge me in some kind of significant way. I, I think that's so important, and I know that Tom was moving in that direction in, in a couple of his chapters of who is the Samaritan to you in, in the parable of Jesus? The Samaritan is the guy from the other side, the enemy, who is the one who takes the time to help the guy at the side of the road who no one else will help. And Jesus thereby um, really says a word about accepting and reaching out to your enemies and also seeing the value and the humanity and maybe the nobility in people that you find alienating. And in that spirit, I would have to say uh, in this conversation, part of I've been feeling a little antsy because I feel uh, so much on behalf of more conservative evangelicals and, and people I've known in churches who are conservative people. They're, they may be politically conservative. They may be theologically conservative at the same time. And they're extraordinarily beautiful and good people. And I think that is also getting lost in the national debate, that capacity for finding the beauty and the value and the integrity in people who we disagree with. Um, and I think that Tom's right in pointing us toward Jesus as a source of that. I just have to tell a really, really quick story, and then we'll go to break. So the church that I attend is Baptist, and it is uh, evangelical. I do call us Quaptists because in the middle of service, we have this sort of Quakery kind of thing where anybody can talk. Uh, it's a very LGBTQ welcoming. It couldn't be more. Two of our three pastors are uh, LGBTQ somewhere in there. Um, so this past Sunday, the interim director of the American Baptist Churches in Connecticut, the kind of conference director, this very nice guy, shows up because, you know, we've been in the newspapers a 
little bit and stuff. So he wants to visit our service. So uh, one of the things that happens in the service is that Ben, one of our pastors who grew up Jewish, says that we're going to say the uh, Kaddish uh, for mourners, not only today, but for a year, because our pastor Nancy has died, mm-hmm. uh, and that that's the Jewish tradition. And he says it in Hebrew, and then we all say it in English. And, and, and so that's the first thing that happens. And then the second thing that happens is at the end of the service, um, uh, Arunin, who's uh, kind of leads the worship band, gets so keyed up that uh, very punk rock style, he intentionally kicks over his music stand <laughs> at the end of the the last song, you know. And there's sheet music flying all over the place, and the uh, the, the you know stand is clattering on the ground, and the worship band is laughing hysterically. And I just went over to the guy. I said, "Just don't write us up for this, all right? I know we're saying <laughs> kaddishes and kicking over our music stands, but you know, it's we we mean well. If I'm our, going to a church uh, this coming Sunday, that's the one." Yeah, come on up, come on up. All right, we're we're gonna take a little break. We'll come back. Today's show was produced by Pastor Betsy Kaplan and me, Bishop Kyone Wolf. Appearing in our intro are the Reverend Jonathan McPants, Pastor Betsy, Deacon Ray Hardman, and introducing altar boy Jeff Tyson. The part of Bill Carey was played by Dorothy Day. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And now. All right. So uh, we're talking to Tom Crottenmaker uh, here. He's got a new book out called Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower, Finding Answers in Jesus for Those Who Don't Believe. Also in studio with me and Tom is Brian Clark, faculty associate in World Christianity and director of online learning, learning at Hartford Seminary. And joining us by phone is Susan Campbell, distinguished lecturer of communications at University of New Haven and the author of, among other books, Dating Jesus, a story of fundamentalism, feminism, and the American girl. See, I really want to be a guest on this show. I should have made Susan hosted, so I could just be a guest. <laughs> um, so, Tom, you know one of the bo- one of the chapters that I found profound and really interesting, and or at least it spoke back to me very powerfully in your book, is called "Saved from What." So, when we think of um, salvation in a, a Christian context, probably the average person thinks, "Oh, yeah, so you're saved, so you don't go to hell, so you know you get to go to heaven, your soul saved, whatever." you know, overlay they put on it. For you, you're talking about this in a different way. You're, you're talking totally. about being saved from other things. And I, I thought those things were very important. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Totally. So if you tried to query me as to why I never really could become a full-blown Christian, this is one of the stumbling blocks. When people have put forward this proposition about, you know, if you believe this discrete set of propositions about Jesus, if you say this particular prayer— um, you will be transformed and you will be saved from hell and you will be bound for heaven. And I've tried to do that. It just never took. And I've always found it to be an unhelpful abstraction that just didn't mean anything to me and left me cold. And unfortunately, this has often been how Christianity has been presented to me and many others. But I started thinking about it. What would it mean to be saved in your life? And I started thinking that a lot of us who aren't religious, well, As it turns out, we could actually use some of that saving. You know what I'm saying? I started thinking about ways in which our lives might be misdirected. And um, this probably applies to a lot of religious people, too. But I started to see the ways in which maybe we lose track of what our life could be. It could be directed toward the wrong ends. 
It could be completely devoted to trivial self-seeking and a life that misses the point. And what a waste. And mm-hmm. so I started thinking about what could we be saved from? And that's what I try to um, articulate in the, um, in the chapter. And I end up saying that, well, we could be saved from a life that is dedicated only to ourselves and to this trivial self-seeking that afflicts a lot of us. Yeah. And Brian, to me, that this is where, I mean, there's just so much overlap, I would guess, knowing nothing of you really, but uh, <laughs> between you and Tom, there's like one area where you don't under, overlap. But this is, I don't know, like I started going to church uh, in, in 2015, mainly because I was interested in, in Nancy Butler. And then I just stayed for exactly the reasons that he's talking about, because I thought, I, I need to be thinking about other stuff, you know, and this is a place where I can go and begin thinking about some of these really profound questions about what does life mean? So so part of me wants to really go theology lesson here, but I'll restrain it. Yeah, you, to say go. you know what? So, I, I don't so, think you should hold uh, back. There's there's a little piece of, of history, which is really important, which is that so much of modern American Christianity, it really comes out of the Reformation. And the Reformation was was really a moment, 500 years ago, basically to the day, uh, where people said, uh, really Martin Luther and, the, and people who followed with his thinking, that the ways that people have of performing righteousness or performing goodness in the Catholic, what's called an economy of merit, uh, just don't mean anything. And so uh-huh. what they did was in sort of throwing out the baby with the bathwater and maybe the baby Jesus with the bathwater a little bit, was they pushed aside the ancient Christian idea of the life of a Christian as a following in the footsteps in an emulation of Jesus. And they almost made it so that the only human life that really mattered for salvation was that of Jesus and that no one's human life really affected that much. And so much, uh, so many movements subsequent to that in Protestantism have been movements of recovering the relevance of our lives and the way that we're transformed into the image of Jesus as part of that salvation process. And so, Susan, uh, at least among the people that I go to church with, there's a, the phrase, pick up your cross, you know, okay. That, that, okay, so you've now started to think a little bit differently about what life means and what life is for. And then there's that idea of pick up your cross. And I don't, to me, that's a very powerful, it's become a very powerful phrase. I don't know, maybe you could react to it. I grew up singing hymns about that, and it wasn't something you did joyfully or sadly. It just was a part of the deal that as, as Jesus picked up his cross, and, and if you cling to this particular kind of theology, died for us, then the least we can do now is turn around and however we interpret picking up the cross, do that. And for, I think, um, I agree with Brian that there are conservative Christians who are lovely people, there are progressive Christians who are lovely people, and however both of those groups think they are living out that life of Jesus. Um, And yes, unlike Tom with the promise of a reward in the end, um, then that's picking up the cross. Did I just talk in a big circle? I think I did. Yeah, but it was a good circle. It was a well, okay. well-formed well circle. Right. Uh, you produced a well-formed circle. And Thank how you. many people can say that at the end of the day? A perfect circle. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and so, I don't know, Brian, you know, one of the things, we, we talked a little bit about this, but and not to make it about demographics, but, you know, there is this contingent of millennials coming on board for whom 
a lot of this stuff just kind of hasn't been all that meaningful or has been a little bit off-putting. And so that that group of people known as nuns, N-O-N-E, that kind of nun, uh, is growing. And, and it seems as though the shame of it is that some of the things that we've been talking about here today, this message isn't getting out somehow, that that, that migration towards communities of loving, which might be a very attractive thing to millennials, somehow or other that message isn't being heard as powerfully as other messages. I don't know. Is that sort of part of the the challenge, the mission for people like you? Well, sure. Um, I think there are so many different things happening all at once that it's easy to, to, to have a single abstraction that can miss a lot of the action. There is so much that is living that's going on. There are huge generational changes, certainly within evangelicalism, where the, the passion for social justice and uh, different kinds of outreach, uh, m- less evangelism, more social justice, more uh, mission as how we connect with people different than us. That's becoming really mainstream in evangelicalism, much more than the secular, uh, you know, uh, disapprovers would imagine. Mm-hmm. I-, I think the 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 question of what is Jesus saving us from is profound, and I think, is Jesus saving us from our materialism? Is Jesus saving us from our addictions? Is Jesus saving us from the pointlessness of this life? And I don't see that as incompatible with fundamental Christian theology, and in fact, I see that as what many of the bedrock issues of theology are concerned with. It's a language for talking about who are you becoming? Uh, who are whose image are you increasingly coming to share? And that's pretty darn basic Christianity, if you ask me. Uh, but I see that Tom has got it every bad as every bit as bad as I do, and so that makes me. I, I'm I'm searching for vocabulary. I'm not sure he's a. I'm not sure what kind of a Christian he is, but he just might be a kind of a Christian. We might have to coin a term or something. This sounds like a new juxt- How about secular Jesus follower. Okay, yeah. okay. I'm Jesus not sure I'm happy yeah. with that one, but okay. Maybe, I feel like you know. we're on the verge of some kind of yeah. Jeff Foxworthy routine. You might be a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and and well, but that's sort of an interesting moment. Let's just stay with that for a second. We're almost out of time here anyway. But Tom, you know, it, it, it seemed seemed important at that moment. I mean, Brian's really tempted to call you a Christian, even though you don't really line up over the ball the way we'd really like you to. You know, and you're very tempted to not be called a Christian. Why is that important? <laughs> I want people to be able to um, hear my message, and I want Jesus to be available to a lot more people. And for one. I want to be honest. I mean, I'm not a Christian in terms of how that term is most frequently defined. I mean, I don't really believe in God, so I'm kind of disqualified (laughs) for being a Christian. I think Jesus has so much to offer, though. And so I've decided for myself that I'm not going to be stopped by all this stuff. I'm going to engage with this figure of Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus, even though technically I'm not supposed to. And I hope other people for whom Jesus is not available, people who are not qualified, I hope they see something in this. And I hope that they can be inspired by some of the stuff that Jesus showed us, taught us, the stuff he said and did, because I think their lives will be enriched. I think our society will become better. I think there's a lot there. So my mm-hmm. project mm-hmm. is to make Jesus available to more people. Susan, you know, Susan Campbell, the hilarious thing about Tom is he clearly takes Jesus and Christianity a hell of a lot more seriously than a lot of people <laughs> who call themselves Christians. I know, and it's yeah, funny, exactly. Tom, I know where you live. I'll just come knock on your door for Jesus <laughs> and drag you in yeah. to the church. I, I, think the, I think the book is wonderful. I said that, that earlier, so nice. not Thank just you. for believers, but are non-believers, but believers. 
Right. I mean, it just—it's funny. What I meant by that is, you know what, Tom? You could pass. You know? <laughs> nope. You could no, probably free. If he walked around saying he was a Christian, nobody would ever. And then you look, listen to how seriously he takes all of the teachings yeah. of Jesus. He'd probably be one of the more Christian people in a lot of mainline yeah. churches. We could make him an elder or a deacon. Except yeah. for that prayer problem yeah, and well, belief yeah. problem. Uh, we certainly don't want to make a liar out of you anyway. <laughs> so um, I don't dare ask another question uh, other than to say, uh, I'll tell a real, real fast story. I have a minute left. So um, so Nancy Butler, who was my pastor, who, who died a few weeks ago from ALS, she— um, she got invited to go out and give the speech to a group of progressive uh, pastors, progressive evangelical pastors. This is, Brian's very familiar with all this, as is Susan. And it involved flying out to Minneapolis, and she had ALS. And she taught, She was telling the congregation, well, you know, I guess I can't go. And we're all kind of, phew, because if you do, you're probably going to die because you're just too weak right now to do this. And then about a week later, she said, no, I'm going to Minneapolis. And we went, no, 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 no. And she went to Minneapolis, and she gave this speech. And she gave a speech about a concept called sola scriptura, which— I'll probably flunk Brian's class, but it basically sort of says, you know, if it's in the Bible, then it's there. And if it's not in the Bible, it's not there. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know what, we got to get beyond that because people read the Bible and they come to all kinds of conclusions that are really not very nice. And she said, really, you know, we sh it really is the question of what, what would Jesus say about this, you know? And how likely is it that Jesus would tell us to do something that wasn't nice? How likely is it that Jesus would tell us, you know that transgendered person? Well, he can't go in the bathroom he wants to. He has to be miserable or she has to be miserable and scared. You know, how likely is it that Jesus would say that? And if we think it isn't that likely, then we have to sort of figure this out some other way, which is total heresy, of course, but then— <laughs> But that's I don't know. As you want to, if you want to speak to that generation of millennials coming online right now, I think you gotta you gotta use that kind of language and thinking. So I do. Yeah, I, do. I wanted to end with something Nancy said. Anyway, thanks to all of you. you guys have been great. What a terrific conversation. They're fun. going they're going Thank on the so road. Much. They're going to be appearing together, the three of them, at some uh, theology groups and comedy clubs and stuff like that. So uh, okay. don't miss them. So if I become a Christian, can God smite my enemies? No. Locusts? Boils? We don't do that anymore. If you don't get in on the ground floor, you miss all the good stuff.